so today we're going to be starting a new series, and we're going to be taking a look at the Gospel of Matthew. I know it's, it's only February, you're probably thinking, you know, we're in winter, it's just, we just started February, but I'm already sort of thinking of Easter, certainly if you're a pastor, you're already thinking of Easter even way beforehand. But as I was planning out a series, I sort of wanted to do something in sort of the lead up to Easter that would sort of naturally tie in, and so I figured, well, why don't we take a look at one of the Gospels, and so we're going to kind of march our way through the Gospel of Matthew, and actually we're going to wind up tying it in perfectly that when we get to Palm Sunday, we're going to be looking at the triumphal entry. And then we're going to get to Easter, and we're going to look at the death and resurrection of Christ. And we're even going to go a week beyond that and take a look at the Great Commission. And so I figured with Easter being not that far off, even though it might feel like that's the case, we're sort of in that lead up to to Easter, and let's really take a look at Christ and where better to look than the Gospels and look at his ministry that he lived out. And so we're going to work our way through through the Gospel of Matthew. Today we're going to be uh, in chapter 3, and you might be thinking, you know, hey, uh, Steve, you sort of passed over chapters 1 and 2, and it's kind of important. You know, Jesus is born in there. Uh, So I realize that. I realize that I'm passing over that, but I figured, you know, it wasn't that long ago, just over a month, uh, that it was Christmas, and we had the whole month of Advent. And so we really spent a lot of time already focusing on Christ, focusing on his birth. Uh, And so I figured, well, we've already treated that in, in great detail, so let's sort of move beyond that, since we've just done that very recently. And so I figured, well, let's go to to chapter 3. And here what we're going to see in chapter 3, verses 1 through 17, uh, that's the passage we're going to be looking at today, is John the Baptist and the baptism of Jesus. And these are really significant. This is a significant passage uh, for a couple reasons. Really, it sort of sets the stage for all that is to come, right? That's really, in effect, John the Baptist's role. Sort of, what is his role? What's his function? What is he even doing? His whole purpose is sort of to do and lay a little bit of the groundwork for Jesus, to really prepare the way for the Messiah, Christ himself, Jesus himself, of course, right? So it sort of sets the groundwork in that sense. He's already sort of calling people to repentance sort of setting the stage, already sort of speaking against the religious leaders and all of their false teachings, you're right, the legalism of the Pharisees, sort of the poor theology in many ways of the Sadducees. He's sort of already harping, uh, sort of criticizing that, harping against that, right, and sort of laying the groundwork, calling people to repentance, sort of setting the stage for the Messiah to sort of come in and sort of pick up where John left off. Uh, So we see setting the stage in that sense, but also if we think of the baptism of Jesus, this is sort of the official inauguration of his ministry. And so in a sense, it really kicks off all that is to follow. If we think of Jesus' years of ministry, right, uh, ultimately, of course, culminating in what? You know, his, his death, his resurrection. We're going to look at that uh, on Easter, right? This is sort of what, what kicks that all off and sets that in motion. It's sort of the official inauguration of his ministry. And so this really sets the stage for all that is to come in the rest of this gospel, the gospel of Matthew, all of the ministry of, of Jesus, his earthly ministry. So let's dive in right now. Uh, We're going to read this, Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. I'll read it for us. I'm not going to read through all of it at once. I'll sort of read through and pause at different points, you know, as uh, as I want to interject and sort of do a little teaching, I'll do that. And so we'll sort of bit by bit march our way through this this text, uh, this passage. But let's start here, Matthew chapter 3, right at verse 1. And here's what it says. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. 
Right, so already this is sort of him setting the stage as we talked about. He's already calling people to repentance, sort of, uh, sort of helping to set the stage for Christ himself, the Messiah, for Jesus. Then it goes on. Right, so saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And then it goes on, verse 3. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord and make straight paths for him. So this is a quote from Isaiah chapter 40, specifically uh, it's verse 3. And of course what's being said is, well, who is this referring to? He's saying, well, this is referring to, to John the Baptist. And I want to pause here for just a little bit and talk about not just Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3, but really sort of Isaiah 40 as a whole. I'm not going to read it all for us now. If you'd like to do that, you can. Uh, but I think it's sort of significant for understanding what's going on here. And in Isaiah chapter 40, uh, Isaiah in this chapter is really making reference uh, to three different things. And I'll sort of get, get to what those three different things, three different events that, that, that two of which will take place are sort of in the future from Isaiah's perspective as he's writing, you know, if you want to look at sort of ballpark number, maybe 700-ish B.C. There, there are two events that are still yet to come that he's speaking of in this chapter. And there's one event that has already taken place. Uh, and so to set the context, uh, while this is still in the future, what Isaiah has just spoken of is in reference to the southern kingdom of Judah. He's already said, hey, here's what's going to happen. You guys have rebelled against the Lord. So the Babylonian Empire, they're going to they're come in. They're going to conquer you. Uh, and you're going to be taken away into exile over into Babylon. And that's what's going to take place. So he's already spoken of that in, in Isaiah, in the book of Isaiah so far. But now he gets to, to chapter 40. And it's sort of like, you know, the end of the bad news. And now here's the good news, he says, ultimately, it's not like you're going to stay there in exile forever. But what God is going to do, and this is one of the events that he's speaking of, is he's saying God's going to redeem you from this exile, from this oppression, and he's going to restore you and bring you back to the promised land. But sort of the way in which he describes this, the way in which he sort of frames it all, is sort of like a, a second exodus in a sense, right? If you sort of think of the story of Exodus, uh, very much when he speaks of, of the return from Babylon, it's very much the same situation. And so that's sort of one of the second events that he's speaking of, speaking of the one that has already taken place. And he's saying, just as way long ago in the days of Moses, well, what did God do there, right? Well, you were in a foreign land in captivity there. And what did God do? He showed up, he delivered you, right? And then he led you through the wilderness, right? Think of the pillar of cloud by day and then the pillar of fire by night. He led you through the wilderness, ultimately into the promised land. And so Isaiah sort of uses that same language to explain, hey, God's going to do that again. You know, in the future, this is still all future, right, to, to Isaiah's time. He's saying you're going to be taken into exile, but ultimately you won't be there forever. And what's going to happen is God's going to show up again. He's going to deliver you from this exile as you're in this foreign land, you know, oppressed uh, in captivity. What he's going to do is show up and deliver you, and he's going to lead you, right, ultimately back to the promised land. So those are two events that he's speaking of, but there's a third that's all the more significant. So he's not just speaking of sort of one future event that's, you know, roughly 150 years or so after Isaiah's time, and speaking of that in terms of this past event of the Exodus story. But he's speaking of another event that's roughly 700 years in the future, and that's the time of Christ. And he says, just as in those two times, the story of the Exodus and, and also the return from exile in Babylon, he's saying a third time God is going to show up. And he's going to show up, in this case specifically, right, 
in the person of Jesus Christ, God the Son incarnate. He's going to show up, and what is he going to do? He's going to deliver his people from that which oppresses them, which holds them captive, and that is specifically their sin, right? So Christ, who's God himself, is going to now this third time show up, right, and of course deliver God's people and so that's what's being spoken of here. And so there's a, a lot that's being said here that, that even if, as we read here, just verse 3, this is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. There's really a lot more richness in that if we sort of understand all of what's being said in Isaiah chapter 40. Part of what's being said here is, right, uh, who Christ is, he's the Lord, he's God himself, right? But not only that, what he's going to do, just as he did before, he came and delivered God's people powerfully from oppression multiple times. He's saying again he's going to come and show up. God himself, this is who Christ is, who Jesus is, it's God himself, and he's going to come to deliver his people specifically from their sin. And of course, what's John's role in this? Well, he's just, he's this voice of one calling in the wilderness. He's there in the wilderness of Judea, and What's his whole role? He's shouting forth, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. This is sort of his, his capacity, his role, to prepare the way for, for the coming of, of the Lord, God himself, who is the Messiah, who is Christ himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so his whole role here is a preparatory role to sort of set the stage for the coming of the Lord himself, who is Jesus Christ. And sort of continuing on with this theme of sort of setting the stage and preparing the way, right? He's not just the one who prepares the way for God himself, but he's the one who prepares the way for the Messiah, which winds up being one and the same since the Messiah is indeed God himself. Christ is, is both, is all. But he goes on in, in, in verse 4 here, what we're going to see is John, I'll read this for us, but John here being depicted as the second Elijah, right? Think of the prophecy of how it was spoken in the Old Testament that before the Messiah was to come, well, who was going to come first and be that forerunner of the Messiah? Well, it was going to be Elijah. Not specifically Elijah himself, as though he comes back to life here on earth, but rather one who comes sort of in the same role and function of Elijah, and that winds up being John. So he's the one who prepares the way for the Lord, for God himself, uh, as Isaiah speaks of, but also as is spoken of elsewhere, he's the one who prepares prepares the way for the Messiah, and wonder of wonders, it's, it's the same. It's one and the same thing, since the Messiah is the Lord. Christ Jesus is, is both. He's the Messiah, and he is God himself. And so this is what's said in, in verse 4. It says, John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. And you might sort of be sitting here thinking, hey, Pastor Steve, didn't you just say that, that right here in this verse, we're going to see that, oh, John's being depicted as this, this second Elijah, right? Elijah who's to come before the Messiah. And all I see here is like he's wearing this camel's hair clothing. He's got a leather belt. He's eating locusts and wild honey. It just sort of seems like what's being said is he's living this sort of simplistic lifestyle, which, which certainly is true. And that is in part what's being said, that, that uh, John isn't about... Uh, John the Baptist isn't about sort of outward appearances and, and sort of the wealth of the world and luxuries. No, he's more about true things, things of real substance, right? Things of real spiritual substance and value, as opposed to the religious leaders who cared an awful lot about wealth and money and eating good food and, and you know, having beautiful clothing. And John's saying, no, I'm not like them. I'm about spiritual things rather than material things. But I'd say more than just that is being said. And I think if we read a description of Elijah from 2 Kings, this is 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8, we'll see a striking resemblance. And I'd say this is no accident, this is no coincidence. 
Right? This is 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8. Not that you need to know the context, but this is describing Elijah. It says, they replied, he had a garment of hair and had a leather belt around his waist. The king said, that was Elijah the Tishbite. Right? So here's how Elijah is described. He has this garment of hair and had a leather belt around his waist. And what do we read of John? His clothes were made of camel's hair and he had a leather belt around his waist. Right? This is not sort of coincidental. They just happen to like, you know, have the same fashion sense and they like the same clothing. No, this is very intentional. John knows his role. He knows that his role is to be that, that second Elijah, not literally Elijah himself having returned to life, but sort of in the, carrying out the same role and function. And so he dresses in much the same way, right? In a sense, as a public statement of this is who I am, this is my role, this is my office, right? This is sort of who I am. I am the second Elijah. But a good question to ask here is to sort of say, well, what, like, what does it mean to be this second Elijah who was to be this forerunner of the coming of the Messiah? Sort of in what way is John like Elijah? If we sort of think of, well, Elijah and, and his ministry and what he did and sort of how is John the Baptist the same, right? Uh, a very good question to ask. And I'd say we see similarities in a couple of ways. Uh, One of which is sort of in regard to calling people to repent and sort of helping to bring about, at least to some degree, a change in the hearts of of God's people. When God's people have sort of uh, gone astray, right, if we think of Elijah and one of sort of the big stories from the life of Elijah, it's sort of that showdown with the prophets of Baal. I'm not going to read it all, but I'll sort of summarize it a little bit. So there's the showdown with the prophets of Baal, right? Uh, And basically, here's how it goes is, well, uh, Elijah is going to prepare a sacrifice, right? lay it all out, a burnt offering, lay it all out on the wood and everything, get it all squared away. And then the prophets of Baal, right, the people of Israel, they have sort of forsaken the Lord. They've gone after all the the pagan Canaanite deities, sort of one of them being chief would be uh, Baal himself. Uh, one of the chief Canaanite deities. And so they've, they've gone after, uh, after false gods. And so the prophets of Baal, right, he, he challenges them and he says, well, hey, we'll find out whose God is really God. Uh, so you do the same thing. You prepare your sacrifice. You can arrange the wood on the altar and everything and, and you know, cut up, cut up the animal and get it all squared away. And why don't you just sort of, you can call to your God in heaven, right, and see if he can just miraculously set it all ablaze. And so they go on and on and on doing doing all sorts of crazy things, even cutting themselves, bloodletting to try to get their God to, you know, show up and do something. Uh, and, and Elijah kind of mocks them, you know, well, maybe he's sleeping. Maybe he's going to the bathroom. He literally says that because this was sort of the Canaanite notion of their deities. They were sort of just like people. They slept at times, so maybe you couldn't get a hold of them. Or they went to the bathroom, and so you couldn't get a hold of them. Uh, so he's sort of mocking them, and he realizes Baal is no God at all, right? And so, of course, nothing happens. So then Elijah just says, you know, let's make this a little tougher for me. Let's, like, go get tons and tons of water, and let's just pour it on. Soak that wood up, right? Get it nice and wet, because surely that's not good for setting it ablaze. And so it'll just be all the more obvious that when this is set on fire, this is the Lord himself doing it, and that he, of course, is God. And so that's what he does, pours water on it, uh, prays out 
calls out to God, prays to God, and of course what, comes, what happens is fire comes down from heaven and, and the whole offering is consumed. And what happens is the people suddenly realize, doesn't mean it's sort of this long-lasting realization and suddenly everyone's super faithful to the Lord, but there's this realization on the part of the people of Israel, surely Yahweh, surely the true God of Israel, he's God, and Baal, Baal's nothing, right? Uh, and so what do they do? They put to death the prophets of Baal. Again, often them turning to the Lord was short-lived and it didn't take long before they were back at uh, sort of their rebellion to the Lord. But part of Elijah's role was sort of to oppose the evil of his day, right, the evil that had sort of filtered into the midst of God's people, to oppose it and sort of seek to bring about a repentance and change of heart. Uh, And so, in effect, that's really John the Baptist's role, this evil that has sort of crept into the people of Israel, right? You think of these religious leaders, the Sadducees, with all of their poor doctrine, and they've led people astray. Uh, even more notably, the Pharisees, who cert- certainly would have held more weight with sort of uh, your average person in Israel in that day and age, in Judea. Um, and, you know, while their theology in general was better than that of the Sadducees, they had sort of this great glaring error, th- error that they had perverted the gospel effectively. They-, they had a whole work system where, you know, if you just do all of the the works of the law. If you can just sort of keep all of the regulations and do this and offer these sacrifices and, and do every little detail right, well then surely as long as you at least do a good enough job, you'll be acceptable in God's sight, right? God will accept you. Rather than recognizing, hey, no, we're all sinners, we all fall short and we're under judgment. We can't be, we can't earn our way into heaven, but rather it's just when we turn toward the Lord and repentance and faith, right, that, that he forgives our sins, right? But they have sort of perverted the truth and, and of course, in, in in effect, uh, enslaved the people of Israel to this sort of works-based justification that they could never really attain to, right? And so uh, there's this evil that has, in, in perverse teaching and twisting of the truth that has crept into to the people of Israel and was sort of the prevalent teaching of, of that time and that day and age. And so what is John doing? Well, he speaks out against it. He has certainly awfully harsh words, as we'll even see here, uh, for the religious leaders of his day because he realizes that they are leading the people astray and his role is sort of to oppose the evil of his day and to lead people back to the Lord, call them to repentance, which was very much a similar role as Elijah's role. But I'd say we see another parallel that's that's very significant as well uh, in in the fact that sort of both were forerunners of one who was, in fact, greater than they were. And we might think, boy, like, Elijah, really? He's kind of like the real deal prophet. Like, is is there someone greater than him, greater than he who came after him? And while Elijah is better known, uh, Scripture actually says that his successor, Elisha, actually had a double portion of the Spirit poured out upon him. He had sort of twice the the prophetic power and ability uh, that Elijah had. And so actually his successor, though lesser known, was actually a greater prophet, effectively, than he was. And so in a sense, he was sort of this forerunner of one who came after him who was much greater than he was. Right, Elisha was much greater than Elijah was. And we see the same thing with John the Baptist, where even though he's this great prophet, the reality is the one who comes after him, his successor, isn't just, doesn't just have sort of a double portion of that role, but is sort of immeasurably greater than John the Baptist is. And so they also both have sort of that forerunner role where the successor is so much greater than they are as well. And so I'd say those are the ways in which John the Baptist is sort of like Elijah, sort of uh, carries out that Elijah-like role and office. But so let's read on. We're we're at verse 5. 
here, and it says, People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. And I want to talk a little bit about baptism here. We actually will see it a, a little bit later as it's spoken of in, in verse 13, uh, verse 11, that is. I baptize you with water for repentance. But uh, we have to realize, certainly in John's day, uh, the symbolism and, and meaning of baptism was not quite as rich as it is sort of now in Christ, once Christ comes, and sort of this further meaning that's infused into baptism and all that it, uh, all that it is, all that it means, right? Uh, in John's day, it wasn't quite so Christ-centered because Christ had not yet come. Uh, but, but still, there were great similarities with baptism in John's day and age as compared to sort of after that, uh, under Christ, of course, as well. But sort of at its core, baptism, as John was performing baptism, was thoroughly about repentance. It was sort of this public declaration of repentance, uh, sort of saying, hey, that, that former sinful life that I used to live, I'm going to leave that behind, and now I'm devoting myself whole, wholeheartedly to the Lord. I'm leaving that former sinful way behind, repenting of it, and turning toward the Lord and devoting myself to him. I'm sort of setting apart my life, consecrating it to the Lord. I'm his. He's everything to me. It's sort of is symbolic of that repentance, but I'd say also sort of symbolic of, of cleansing as well, sort of being immersed in water, certainly having that, that cleansing symbolism that as one turns toward God in repentance and faith, right, as, as they turn toward God in repentance, faith, trusting in him for the forgiveness of their sins, well, they're forgiven and they're cleansed. And so that's sort of part of the symbolism as well. And certainly you see those continuing on even uh, in baptism in, in Christ, but there's just sort of further meaning and symbolism in baptism now in Christ for, for Christians. But we'll sort of come back to that a little bit more. It'll become significant as we take a look at Jesus and his baptism, so that's why I, I mention that now. But sort of reading on, verse 7, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Right? That would have been very much a, a Jewish way of thinking is, hey, you know, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they're, they're our fathers, so we're good. We're golden. You know, yeah, we just sort of keep the law a little bit. We do, we do enough works and whatnot. We're golden because we're God's chosen people. That would have very much been the mindset. And sort of here John saying, you guys don't get it. You think just sort of because of your blood, in a sense, your bloodline, you're, you're just going to be okay. And, and, you know, on the day of judgment, you'll, you think you'll be accepted because of that. But you're wrong. Right? And what does he go on to say? He says, I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. And indeed, he has done that. Not to say necessarily literally from stones, but from those who are not from a sort of an ethnic perspective, from those who do not, are not literally from the bloodline of Abraham. I could include myself in that. As far as I know, I, I, you know in no way does my lineage right, trace back in time to Abraham. Probably most of us could say the same thing. We're not in any way ethnically Jewish, at least most of us, as far as I know. Yet we are truly children of Abraham by faith, right? In a, sense, in, in a spiritual sense, we are children of Abraham. And that's what John the Baptist is saying. Those who are not by blood children of Abraham, in a spiritual way, by faith, are really and truly his children. Whereas those who might claim, oh, I, I you know, uh, by bloodline, I'm a, I'm a child of Abraham. Hey, if they reject the Lord, if they are unrepentant, then they're not really, truly a child of Abraham in the most significant sense. 
And he goes on, the axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Certainly imagery here of of eternal punishment, of judgment. Uh, Here he's not saying suddenly that it's about works, right? It's not like, hey, every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire, so suddenly we're, we're, we're making it about works. That's not what he's saying, right? We even have to interpret this in light of verse 8, which says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. That is really just the fruit, the way, you know, the works that you live out are reflective of what's really in your heart. So the person who has true repentance and saving faith, right, what's naturally going to happen is they're going to live out a life, a transformed life of obedience to the Lord. Not, not to say that they're going to be perfect, but sort of good works are going to be uh, evidence that you can see that there's this true repentance and faith within them. And it's the repentance and faith that, that will enable them to be saved through Christ, of course, his atoning work. It's not a matter of the good works themselves, but rather those who have no good works, that's in a sense effectively evidence that there's nothing changed in their heart. They're totally unrepentant, and because they're totally unrepentant, right, they will perish in their sins. That's what he's saying there. It's not that he's sort of saying it's about good works. Good works is just sort of the fruit that you see, the evidence of, uh, of, of true saving faith. So he goes on, he says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. And that, that role there of carrying sandals, untying them, all that, that was sort of the role of like the lowest of the low servant or slave. And he's saying, the guy who comes after me, who I'm going to wind up pointing out, that was part of his role to point him out, right? The Messiah, Christ, Jesus, right? He says, the one who comes after me, I'm not even worthy. You might think, oh, I'm John the Baptist. I'm some great guy, some great prophet. But as great as I may seem, I'm not even worthy of being his lowest slave. That's how nothing I am compared to him. Of course, right there, you can clearly see the fact that John understands the divinity of Jesus. He understands who he is. It's God the Son. He's saying, I'm utterly unworthy of anything, even to be his lowest, most worthless slave. I'm not worthy of even that. And so he goes on, right? Whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He, so he says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Right? And that's not two different things. It's one in the same. They're sort of in apposition. It's the Holy Spirit that is fire, right? It's not to say there are two different things that he's baptizing us with, but John's saying, hey, I baptize with water. That may seem great and wonderful, but the one who comes after me, while I only immerse in water, he's going to immerse you and fill you, those who turn toward him in repentance and faith. He's going to immerse them in the Holy Spirit, fill them with the Holy Spirit, which is fire-like, right? It's sort of powerful and fiery. Think of even Pentecost when the Holy Spirit Spirit shows up and it winds up being tongues of fire that they see that rest upon them, right? So he goes on, reading on here, uh, we are at verse 12, it says, his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And again, this is, this is the imagery of sort of sorting, right? Those who, are, who have true faith and repentance who will enter into eternal life, but then there are those, right? The chaff that, that they are unrepentant, they are steeped in sin, and they will perish for their rebellion. And that's what he's saying. They're the chaff that, that is burned with unquenchable fire. 
So now we come to verse 13, and we're moving on now toward the baptism of Jesus. So it says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Uh, And certainly this is an appropriate response for him to have. He he sort of understands who Jesus is, and is sort of like, I'm going to baptize you? That doesn't sound right. It should be the other way around, right? You know, uh, it just doesn't seem to fit. But Jesus has a response here, and so what does Jesus say? He says, this is verse 15, Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. Basically, Jesus says, it's right and proper for this to happen and take place. And you can imagine that part of why John pushes back is, is in part, sort of who should be doing the baptizing. I, you know, I'm not worthy to baptize you. It makes no sense, right? It should be the other way around. But he's probably also thinking of some of the significance and symbolism of baptism, which is sort of this, this act and, and sort of public show of uh, repentance, sort of, if you want to look at sort of the two sides of repentance in a sense, leaving, it's really one act, but you can sort of pick it apart into sort of two different aspects. One is sort of saying, hey, I'm going to leave my former sinful life behind, and now sort of leaving that, I'm going to devote myself to you, Lord, to you, God. Uh, I'm setting myself apart to you, devoting myself to you, right? And so here, John the Baptist could be thinking of this and saying, well, you know, you have no need to repent and turn from any life of sin. Right? You have no need to do that. And also part of the symbolism being that of cleansing from sin, well, it doesn't even make sense. Right? Why, Jesus, would you go and be baptized? You don't need to be cleansed from sin because you have no sin. You have no sort of sinful life to turn from and then devote yourself to the Lord. But I think what we have to understand and why Jesus goes and is baptized, well, first of all, the Father commanded him, even if it's not explicitly stated here. I'd say that's pretty clear, and so he's going to be faithful to the Father. But really it's sort of that other aspect of repentance, not just sort of leaving your former sinful life behind, but then also saying, and I'm devoting myself to you. And it was this public declaration of one's devotion to God, sort of consecrating oneself, setting oneself apart to the Lord. And I would say that's the intent uh, and the symbolism here in Jesus going and being baptized. He's always wholly devoted to the Lord, of course, but he wants to have this, as the Father commands him, this sort of public declaration of that. And so here he comes to John the Baptist because while there's no one worthy of baptizing him, you know, who's still the best pick of those who are out there baptizing. Well, John the Baptist, even though he's not worthy, is the best pick. So he goes to John the Baptist, and he's here to basically publicly devote himself to the Father, which is particularly appropriate right at the outset of his ministry to say, my whole life, and especially these next three years that will be my public ministry culminating in in my death and then resurrection, right, I'm devoting myself to the Lord, consecrating myself to the Father, right, devoting myself entirely to him and his will and plan for me in my life, right? That is what he is doing. And so it's, it's very natural for him to go and say, I want to go and be baptized uh, to do this, to publicly devote myself and show my devotion and consecration to the Father. And so that's what's going on here. So, okay, John consents. He says, fine, I'll do this. And then we get to verse 16. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, 
whom I love, with him I am well pleased. I would almost say that this, it, it's almost like this had to happen. Of course, God the Father wants to say, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. But even if you think of sort of the symbolism and sort of the meaning of baptism and part of it being that cleansing from sin and also sort of that leaving one's former sinful life behind, uh, I, I would say that it's almost like the Father would feel obligated to make it clear this baptism isn't about those things. It's just about him publicly declaring uh, his devotion to me, his heavenly Father, right? And so it's almost like the heavens open up, and here's God the Father proclaiming, right, this is my son whom I love. You could almost say with him I am perfectly pleased, right? There's no need for cleansing for him, even though baptism is often a symbol of that, right? There's no need for him to leave some sort of former sinful life behind and then go and devote himself to me because he has no sin. And so it's like the father here almost feels obligated, right, to, to declare this and make it clear this is not some sort of baptism that is truly repentance because there's no need of repentance. This isn't a baptism demonstrating cleansing because there's no need for cleansing, but it's really just that very specific show of devotion, this public declaration of devotion to me, the Heavenly Father. And so I'd say that's sort of why that takes place. Certainly, the Father delights in declaring his love for, for his Son and his good pleasure with his Son, but I'd say there's, there's probably a little more significance to that as well. So as I sort of said from the outset, this is, this is a significant passage here as we look at sort of John the Baptist, as we look at the baptism of Jesus, again, because it really sets the stage for all that's to come, right? You have John the Baptist here sort of laying a little bit of groundwork that Jesus is then going to build on. He's already, right, John the Baptist calling people to repentance, sort of already sort of undermining the poor teaching of the religious leaders that Jesus will sort of build upon. So here's John sort of laying some of the groundwork and Jesus will sort of, you know, pick up from there. Uh, but then also, this is formally the inauguration of Jesus' ministry. So this sort of kicks off all that is to come. As we think of chapters 3 all the way, uh, chapter 4, that is, all the way to the end, chapter 28, right? This is sort of the inauguration of it all. But as I think about application, right, I, I kind of want to look at the two central themes here from the you know, the two things that we've been looking at, specifically John the Baptist and him preparing the way, uh, but then also Jesus and, and his baptism itself. And I say that the central theme for John the Baptist is really preparing the way, as I just mentioned, right, for Christ and, and for his ministry and for his work. And I'd say in a lot of ways, as we think of application, we have a similar role, right? As we think of our role as followers of Christ, right, we can't change people's hearts. We can't lead them to faith in the Lord in the sense of truly changing their affections, changing right their desire to live in sin, to now give them this desire to live wholeheartedly for the Lord. We can't make people make that choice. But the reality is, right, we can't change all of the evil. We don't have the power to change all of the evil in the world all around us. There are things that we can do. But in a sense, our role is just to prepare the way to sort of set the stage for God's working, right? Ultimately, it's the Holy Spirit who's going to go out, and as we proclaim the gospel, he's going to be the one who's going to actually change hearts. He's going to be the one who truly leads them to faith. He's going to be the one who deals with evil that surrounds us all, all around in our world at large, uh, all around us. We can't bring about that work. That's the work of God. But nonetheless, we're called to sort of do our part to sort of set the stage, as John the Baptist did, for the working 
working of God, just as he set the stage for Christ in his ministry and his working, we can in many ways in our world, especially sort of from an evangelistic perspective, but also from the perspective of just sort of opposing evil all around us, we can set the stage for God then to work through us. And so in many ways, I think we have that, that role of John the Baptist. I don't mean literally we're all like John the Baptist, but, but we do sort of share in that preparatory role. Again, as I said, sort of specifically in evangelistic sense where we go and we sort of sow all those seeds. We can share all about Christ, all about what he's done for us. We can sort of uh, reflect Christ-like love and sort of live that out day in and day out with people. But we can't truly change their hearts. We can't make them make a choice for God. So we sort of lay all the groundwork, but ultimately it's up to God to decide to build upon that and ultimately bring about that transformation. And so I'd say, you know, as we recognize that we have sort of that preparatory role as we sort of lay the groundwork a little bit for God to ultimately do his work, let's be faithful to that role. Let's recognize that in, in many ways we are like John the Baptist. We do have that preparatory role and let's live that out and live it out faithfully. But also sort of thinking of that second theme, looking at particularly the baptism of Jesus, and sort of what that's all about. That's all about him saying, I am devoted, and doing this very publicly, a public declaration, showing forth his devotion to the Father. And we ought to follow Christ's lead and be fully devoted to God, to the Father, to the Son, to the Holy Spirit. We are to be wholeheartedly devoted to God. And I think we're, we're a church filled with people who are devoted to the Lord, but the reality is we all sort of fall short in our devotion to God at times. At times we allow other things to sort of tug at us and our affections and our time and our energy, and we wind up serving at times other things rather than, than God being first in various situations. And I just want to encourage us as we sort of read this passage about Christ and his devotion to the Father and his declaration of that to, to sort of be stirred to grow in our devotion to God, that, that really our goal should be to be perfectly devoted to God. Not that we're going to live that out in this life. We're not going to be perfectly devoted to God in this life. But right, we will be in the age to come when we're one day made perfect, when we die and we go to be with the Lord. But nonetheless, in this life, we are to grow in faithfulness and devotion to God. And I want to encourage us to really live that out faithfully, to sort of, as we look at uh, these two things, being really being devoted to the Lord and also sort of that preparatory role that John the Baptist had that we also share in a sense. I want us to just sort of hear that and say, amen, I'm on board. I want to live out that preparatory role faithfully as John the Baptist did. And just as Christ was fully devoted to God the Father, I want to be fully devoted to God the Father. Not that I'm going to live it out perfectly in this life, but I want to strive to grow in that day after day after day. Ultimately, that I might serve God all the more in my life, that I might glorify him all the more in my life. Amen. And let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this chapter here in Matthew, the story of John the Baptist and the story of, of Lord Jesus, your baptism. And we think of John and his role of preparing the way, setting the stage, and in many ways we do share in that role. There's much that is outside of our power to do, and it's your work, Yet you call us to share in that work, to set the stage in a sense, whether it's from an evangelistic perspective. We can't change hearts. We can't force people to follow you. 
That's your work. You ultimately are the one who will change people's hearts and lead people to yourself. But you still call us to set the stage for your working, to proclaim the truth of the gospel, to live it out day after day, to reflect Christ-like love, to be your faithful witnesses. And may we take that preparatory role seriously and live it out faithfully just as John the Baptist did. And also, Lord Jesus, thinking of your baptism and your public declaration of your devotion to the Father, may that inspire us to say we need to be fully devoted to you, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And certainly we have devotion to you, but at times, undoubtedly, we waver in it. And we allow other things to tug at our hearts and affections and lead us astray. And Lord, I pray that you would just work in our hearts, grow us day after day in our devotion to you. May our lives be all the more consecrated and set apart to you, ultimately for you. That you might be served all the more and honored all the more in our lives and glorified all the more in our lives. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.